0: Welcome to the Context Matters Podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I like to gather around the table with a wide variety of people who have very different life experiences from mine. And we get to talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcome around this table. You can reach out to me through my Narrative of Place website. Welcome back to the Podcast Table. This week, we get to continue our conversation with Dr. Gordon McConville, who was not only my PhD advisor and mentor, but is now the emeritus professor in Old Testament at the University of Gloucestershire. He's also a prolific writer. His commentary on Isaiah with Baker was released last year, and then he wrote another book called The Suffering Servant, Isaiah 53, For the Life of the Church. Last week, we talked about the characteristics of Isaiah, the person and the book. And then we narrowed our focus to the servant songs found in chapters 40 through 55. Professor McConville pointed out that in some of the Servant songs, the Servant is obviously the corporate collection of Jews in exile. But in other songs, the Servant seems to be one singular person. Isaiah 53 is one of those times we see the depiction of a person who has suffered horrifically. So this corporate and then singular view adds to some of the interpretive complications of Isaiah But even the idea of suffering, I mean, as you know, suffering is not an absent subject from the Bible. We have a whole book of Job that is exploring the idea or the poetry of Psalm 88. So this week, I'm starting the conversation with Professor McConville around the question, what makes the suffering of the servant in Isaiah 53 a unique take on suffering?
1: Yeah, the thing that strikes me most about that is that the servant in 53 doesn't speak. It is common in the Psalms particularly, and you mentioned Psalm 88 quite rightly, which is a very bleak psalm, and you mentioned Job, that there are very profound treatments of human suffering in those places. But in all of those, I think it's true to say, a <laughs> suffering person actually articulates something about their distress the servant doesn't in 53 he doesn't in chapter 50 he speaks 53 he doesn't i'm saying he we think of this human figure its masculine grammar so we think of a man suffering i think that's remarkable where because as a literary effect it's incredibly powerful it's asking us to imagine this person through the eyes of other people, you find yourself thinking how awful that must have been. Or indeed, how awful was that? It's almost unimaginable. Whatever he went through is unimaginably awful because you you can't get a handle on it. What do we know about the suffering of this person? It was so awful that people could hardly look. Mm-hmm. They turned away. There's presumably something of shame in that. I don't want to be associated with that person. Perhaps the person himself didn't want to be subjected to anyone's gaze because he was ashamed of how he was, although, in fact, we don't know because there's nothing to say what he felt. There's nothing to say what he felt. We're left to imagine it through others. I mean, the people who speak in verses 1 to 6, we thought he must have been punished by God. Mm. And then we didn't know that he was actually suffering for our sins. I mean, it's all remarkable. It is the most remarkable text. What changed their minds? We don't actually know what changed their minds. All we know is there's this unimaginable, there's something about it that is not limited by being described. And he doesn't say it himself. It's the silence of the servant that I find most powerful Mm. about the whole picture. Yeah.
0: What glimpses do we get of God's righteousness? In this song, there's terrible, horrible suffering. The silence that you're talking about, the context is just so sorrowful. But there's something about God's righteousness, God's judgment, God's justice, maybe even, That is also coming through in the text. So what is that? What is the text doing to highlight these characteristics of God?
1: I think it changes everything, really. In a sense, you could imagine the book of Isaiah with this text taken out. It would still be a comprehensible read. I don't think anyone today is suggesting that one should do that or that it was somehow, you know, a Christian composition surreptitiously slipped in. No one is saying that. The fact that it's there changes everything. Now, look, righteousness is one of the major themes of the book of Isaiah, as you know, justice and righteousness. There's a picture of Jerusalem, Zion very early on in chapter one as a place in which righteousness dwelt. And then it became unfaithful, but a time would come when it would be righteous again, uh, chapter one. And the theme runs. The Lord is always looking for righteousness, and the servant in 53 will make many righteous. Now, in one way, that's a culmination of the trajectory that is leading towards righteousness in the book. But it has only come via this person's suffering. That's the new thing. That's the thing that it adds. Is there something just? How can there be something just?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: By well, an innocent person, and the song makes it quite clear that this person is innocent, an innocent person suffering unjustly to the nth degree, to death, how can that be a way of righteousness? How can that lead to righteousness? And I don't see an, any articulated answer to that mm. in the song, but I think it gives that to us. Mm. The, the servant. Comes to see something in the poem through his suffering. He comes to knowledge. This is presumably knowledge and vision that comes through and because of the suffering that he has endured. And by his knowledge, he will make many righteous. It's a mystery that is in the mind of God. The Lord is clearly also intimately involved. This is the servant of the Lord. And what the servant does, the Lord is completely bound up with. There is a sense in which the Lord is doing what the servant is doing. And this is not yet a Christology where we, you know, I don't want to take that into some Christological formulation. But that's a fact about the text. However, having said that, The picture of the servant is just so uncompromisingly human, embedded in a human experience. You know, a sociologist could come to this and think about context and think about a shame culture and think about illness, for one thing. I think about the way in which a society can reprobate an individual, scapegoating, the sheer physical suffering and Presumably, mental anguish that this person went through, all of that can be visualized as a human experience, um, which is irreducibly human. And that's one of the wonderful things about it, I think. This is not a visitation by some angelic figure who does not participate in the lives that human beings participate in. This is someone who has gone through everything that belongs to being human and all the worst that a human being can be exposed to. I think that's one of the really powerful things about it.
0: There are two ideas Gordon just explored, one, that somehow there is a trajectory towards righteousness that comes through this person's suffering, and second, that there's a pure physicality, a humanness of the experience of this servant in 53, means we should probably talk about the Christian reading of Isaiah 53. New Testament writers, as they are composing their works, are definitely pointing to Jesus and the suffering servant and blending these ideas together. But when we understand the song contextually, as part of the wider literature of Isaiah, the suffering servant song seems to be doing so much more than just something like predicting a Jesus New Testament writers are not necessarily saying Jesus is the fulfillment of a prediction. And then check the box to say Jesus was the Messiah. No, New Testament writers knew their scriptures. They've been reflecting on the entirety of the servant songs or the entirety of Isaiah as they're composing their writings. And they're trying to tell the audience the fullness of who Jesus is. And as they do, they sweep up all of the Isaiah text. So I asked Professor McConville his take on how he understands the New Testament authors to be understanding the Isaiah text and then what they are saying about Jesus as they connect him to Isaiah.
1: Here are people living with this amazing phenomenon of the risen Christ. And they are struggling to understand who he is, who they are, what it means. And they find, of course, they are reading the whole scriptures in order to try and understand who Jesus is. You have Luke 24, Jesus on the Emmaus Road, road, rather tantalizingly explaining to these two people everything in the scriptures about him. And, of course, we don't get to hear that.
0: Oh, the sermon we all want to hear.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know. And even, you know, you get in Act 8, you get the Apostle Philip meeting the Ethiopian official on the road to Gaza topically, reading this passage, and he asks, who is this about? And Philip explains, you know, who it is about. But again, we don't actually hear what Philip says to the Ethiopian. So we're seeing the first Christians reading these texts in order to, or out of their understanding that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. So not just this one, of course, but all, all the scriptures. Yes, I mean they don't do a simple "this is that" thing. They're thinking, "What does it mean?" And you know, they do some amazing things with it. I love Matthew eight seventeen, where Jesus has been healing people. This is to fulfil. Was well, written in the prophets. It is Isaiah fifty three verse four. He healed their infirmities. He healed their infirmities. That's really not. Nice. I like that because, of course, we're used to thinking. Of Christ healing our sins. Rightly, rightly. He does that in the same verse. But also our infirmities. And that's it's just interesting that Matthew takes that verse about that. But it's profound in Mark. The verse is ten forty five. He is a ransom, he gave his life a ransom for many. They are thinking about a an exchange, um, a Christ dying for them the ransom idea is being taken forward. Maybe most profoundly you get John, John 12, where there's this motif of lifting up. Jesus would be lifted up on the cross. And this is taken, this is, how shall I say, it's merged with the idea of Christ being exalted. So there's a convergence of the physical thing of Jesus being lifted up on the cross and the idea of him being exalted in glory. John 12, 28, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. A voice came from him, I have glorified it and will glorify glorify it. And it goes down to 32 where he says, but I, Jesus says, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So that's where you get this convergence of the idea of him being glorified and also lifted up on the cross. That's something that is not just read off the surface of the text. That comes out of the kind of profound theological thinking that we have in the Gospel of John. So, you know, I think the New Testament interpreters, they weren't in the business of proof texting. They were simply reading their scriptures and trying to understand them in relation to this amazing person and set of events that they had experienced. And so you get these kinds of profound thoughts coming up.
0: From a Christian perspective, always heard this text applied like matching, like this is this in Jesus, and we lose the ability to read it slowly in the context that it is, and then let all of that fullness inform who Jesus is. And so it's delightful hearing your thoughts because now I want to go back and very patiently and slowly kind of read through some of these chapters again just to re-observe what the fullness of the text is saying.
1: The text is a gift to us all. I think it's just the most amazing thing. And of course, the Hebrew is part of it. I mean, just kind of relishing the poetry. I love the way even the expression, and this comes already in the first three verses that you get at the end of chapter 52, almost reflects the brokenness of the person. The Hebrew itself is kind of broken,
0: hmm.
1: you know, so that translation sometimes put in a parenthesis or something that expresses a kind of hesitation in the actual Hebrew expression. You know, I'm looking at the NIV 5240 just as there were many who were appalled at him, dash. His appearance was so disfigured. You see why it does that? Um, It goes on. There's another dash at the end of verse 14. So it's not possible to express that in clear, logical, continuous syntax. It's almost, it's expressing in the language the shock of, this vision, the vision of this. And that's true throughout Isaiah. You know, that the poetry matches the thought and is one of the slightly frustrating things of writing for people who don't read Hebrew. How do you convey this? It's not essential, obviously, for people to know Hebrew. <laughs> that would be an addition to the gospel that I don't think the church would have tolerated. But when you do and you read really, it, you appreciate the way in which this is is the case, so I think that that's at the beginning, very near the beginning of this poem. You can feel shockwaves coming through the end of the one who's writing this thing. Mm. It's amazing.
0: What about the modern church? How can this Isaiah 53 text become just a really beautiful and cherished and instructional text for the modern church?
1: Well, I mean, I think in the idea of servanthood, not only the modern church, but built into the way in which the servant works. In the book of Isaiah, you have, after the servant in 53, you begin to get servants. They're mentioned a few times from 54 through to the end of 66 as a faithful community. So the servant has faithful followers who are servants. So for all of us, this also goes to the modern church. When we think of ourselves as servants, we have to bear in mind rather soberingly, that it comes with this shape. There is a a suffering, there is a self-emptying, there is a a giving up of oneself, which is the way not only of obedience, but the way of witness and the way of life. (laughs) You know, the contemplation of the cross is ancient as a Christian tradition and also modern, I think, And it's important, but it's important to have a vision of the cross which enables us to look through and beyond it, which this text does, of course, because it pictures the servant having gone through all the suffering, presumably even death, actually seeing his offspring is the way it's put, seeing the future, seeing uh, faithful people, um, made righteous, vision of a new community. So you, you know, one mustn't be morbid in the way in which we read this, and yet it should always be shape of our Christian lives and what we expect. And I think it needs to be part of our understanding of what the church is. The church should never allow itself to become outwardly powerful or grand or, you know, splendid looking, important. <laughs> it always needs to take this servant shape. Mm. And I'm not trying to make some point about particular ecclesiologies or anything like that. I'm not at all. I'm just saying that whatever form the church takes in the world, it needs to be fundamentally marked by, um, I suppose, the cross. I don't want to say just the cross, but the idea of the suffering servant who brings new life. Um, I mean, that's what I think it does.
0: Ooh, that is a sobering, beautiful and instructional conclusion of what Isaiah 53 means for the modern church. I hope you feel encouraged to go and read Isaiah 53, potentially even getting Gordon's book called The Suffering Servant, Isaiah 53, For the Life of the Church, It was so much fun to have an excuse to talk with my PhD advisor once again across timelines and surprisingly not about Deuteronomy. Such conversations are only possible because there's a team of people who financially support this podcast and some of my other projects. People like Lisa and Asuga Abaya, Kathy and Scott Parker, and Brent Emery. They all allow this to be a sustainable project. It would never, ever happen without them. I produced this episode. Luke Bronner of Odd Parliament did the edits and the final mix. And Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. It is good to be with you. I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe, stay warm, and take care of each other. And above all, stay curious about the world around you.